Well, folks, sure, Jerry Adams Arish. August, uh, Tamay Ansasta Kansatsa. August Tasola Gomsa, Gobel Shevshigulyar, Gomay August. Hussey, Fela, and Fubble. Emil Fersha, and Shockton Shaw. August V. Sholo, Mulyor Nua, Black Mountain, Egg, and uh, Egg Artus, and, and Fela. Jerry Adams here, and hoping you're all well. This is the uh, beginning of Fail and Bubble, and on the first day, I was very pleased to launch my new book, Black Mountain. And I want to thank Fail and Bubble for hosting that event, and everybody else who helped in these COVID restrictive times to make it a successful event. And my thanks also to Tim, Timothy O'Grady, who travelled from Poland to be with us and who did uh, Far a Tea. So the book is available at an Ishog uh, on the Falls Road and through all the normal main uh, non-Republican booksellers uh, throughout the island and farther abroad. So what else? Well, I was just reflecting on, you know, Keir Starmer's recent uh, remarks. And I, I suppose, really, and in fairness, the internal affairs of the Labour Party in Britain are a matter for that party. But its policies in relation to Ireland and these policies have impacted adversely on citizens here, are our business also. So a month ago, the Labour leader, the British Labour leader, visited the North, <coughs> and gave a, a valuable insight into the double think that has been at the core of the British Labour Party's attitude to Ireland. Yes, he, he did the tokenistic uh, assertion of support for the Good Friday Agreement and also the principle that the decision in the end is for the people of Ireland to decide that's about the future of Ireland. And of course, he's absolutely right. The agreement says very, very clearly it's for the people of Ireland alone by agreement between the two parts respectively and without external impediment to exercise their right of self-determination on the basis of consent freely and concurrently given. But then he went on to say that he wanted to stand by and was standing by the Union and very much, he said, on the side of Unionists arguing for Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom. Why? Well, he says he believes in the United Kingdom. So I wonder to myself, what part of it is for the people of the island of Ireland alone and without external impediment does he not understand? Has he no comprehension of the divisive, negative, inept, condescending, violent contribution of successive British governments, including Labour governments and successive British politicians, including Labour politicians, have had in Ireland for generations. 
After partition over 100 years ago, British Labour leaders adopted a policy of non-intervention on issues related to the North. And for them and the Tories, this convention meant that the governance of the North was the responsibility of the old Unionist regime. And in the early 60s, the Campaign for Social Justice began exposing the extent of discrimination against Catholics and advocating for reform. And in August 1964, the Labour opposition leader, Harold Wilson, wrote to the CSJ, the Campaign for Social Justice, and he said, I can assure you that a Labour government would do everything in its power to see that infringement of justice are effectively and efficiently dealt with. Wilson became Prime Minister in October of that year. The convention didn't change. Despite a significant lobby of Labour MPs who were members of the Westminster-based Campaign for Democracy in Ulster, the Labour government failed to achieve any meaningful reform. Why? Because according to Wilson's Home Secretary, Jim Callaghan, they were determined not to get sucked into the Irish bog. Instead, the Labour government in London looked to the Union's Prime Minister, Terence O'Neill, to introduce reform. That approach failed when the Stormont Unionist regime resorted to violence to oppose the civil rights campaign and its demands for very, very modest entitlements. It was a Labour government in London which deployed the British Army in the streets in the north in August 1969. They should have faced down Ian Paisley and forced through the civil rights reforms. And it was their failure to do this that marked the beginning of decades of conflict. In the summer of 1970, Labour was replaced by the Tory government led by Ted Heath. He, they continued to ponder to the Unionist extremists and introduced internment. <clears throat> and after Bloody Sunday, they prorogued Stormont. They were forced to do that. Four years later, Labour was back in power and backing repression. Merlin Rees was appointed Secretary of State. Under his watch, political status was ended. The hate blocks were built. The criminalisation and austerisation policies were ruthlessly pursued. And the conveyor belt system of torture, special diplomatic courts, and changes to the rules of evidence all began to take shape. In April 1976, Rees was replaced by Roy Mason. Working closely with the IUC and the British Army, Mason was determined to, re to break the Republican struggle. Harassment, brutal beatings in interrogation centres, house raids, arbitrary arrests, plastic bullets, shoot-to-kill operations. State collusion with Union's death squads all became commonplace. Infamously, in 1978, Mason declared, we are squeezing the terrorists like rolling up a toothpaste tube. Mason was wrong, as the events of the following years were to prove. Labour, like the Tories, failed to learn one of the many lessons of Irish history. Repression leads to resistance. Historian and writer Dorothy McArdle remarked, that after the Act of Union was passed in 1801, 
Ireland was governed almost exclusively through the 19th century by a succession of coercion acts, which made, she said, every expression of national feeling a crime. Did these coercion laws pacify Ireland? Of course not. Not then and not in our time. And even after Labour was no longer in power and Thatcher entered Downing Street, Labour leaders continued to provide support for her and the Tories. Lest we forget, on this the 40th anniversary of the 1981 hunger strike, it was the British Labour representative Don Concannon who visited the hunger strikers on the 1st of May 1981, four days before Bobby Sands died. Concannon carried a message from the Labour leader Michael Foote telling the prisoners that Labour supported Thatcher's intransigence and that the men should abandon the hunger strike. When Concannon met with Francis Hughes in his cell in the hate blocks, Francis asked him that he support the prisoners' five demands. When Concannon said no, Francis told him, close the door after you. Francis died 11 days later. Tony Blair brought a new style to Labour and to its Irish policy. He was still a British Unionist but was prepared to take risks for a peace process that the Tories had squandered. Jeremy Corbyn was for a United Ireland, so was Tony Benn, Ken Livingstone and others, and they were prepared to state that. The present leader, Kerr Starmer, has now stated his preference and his willingness to ignore the principles of the Good Friday Agreement and interfere in a referendum campaign. He's failed to raise any concerns around the many aspects of the agreement that have still not been implemented almost a quarter of a century later. And worse, he's choosing to ignore the growing and widespread democratic debate currently taking place around the unity referendum and the prospect of a united Ireland. Is Starmer intending to imitate the Tories' narrow brand of English nationalism by wrapping the Union flag around his party and adopting the same little Englander strategy of Johnson? Or is it a new version of Callaghan's not wanting to be sucked into the bog, into the Irish bog? Starmer's opinion that a united Ireland is not in sight is not shared by many in Ireland. Moreover, the future of this island and how we as an island people share it together in peace, equality and harmony is our decision, not his. That should also be the position of the British Labour Party. The cause of Ireland truly should be the cause of Labour. So just to update you on my you know, sorry tale of uh, my travails with Russell, our local rooster thug. And I'm sure you may be tired of this elongated story. I know I am. But you, dear readers, at least have a choice. You can turn this podcast off. You can turn on to someone else's adventures. Me, I have no choice. 
I'm stuck with Russell, the outlaw rooster. It's like being on the run again, juking round corners, afraid to go out. I've taken to carrying a hurling stick. That causes consternation with the dogs. They presume that I'm going to puck the slither for them to fetch. And when I discover this is not the game plan, their disappointment is woeful to behold. And they're useless against this murderous rooster. Dogs are too shrewd to go up against Russell. Or at least our dogs are. So I just try to stay in. Except for the other evening, John the Joiner had left me some of the wonderful home-grown vegetables that he has produced. Spuds, pods of peas, beetroot, early carrots. The carrots and beetroot were topped with luxuriant foliage. And the beetroot leaves looked really nutritious and lush. Good enough to eat, I thought, so I consulted my River Cottage Cookbook, Coop Fernley Wedding Stall, agreed. Cook it like spinach, he advises. So I did. Coop Fernley Wedding Stall was right. The beetroot greenery was scrumptious. So afterwards, well fed and watered, I scooped all the remnants of the pea pods and the potato bits and the assorted greenery onto a plate and ventured forth to give the two donkeys a treat. The donkeys, incidentally, Thelma and Louise, are related through marriage to the dog knoppers, but that's another story. In my desire to do good by the donkeys, I forgot about Russell. Russell didn't forget about me. As I turned the corner, he came at me like a feathered projectile at head height and all beak and talons. A deadly feathered rocket. I clattered him with the plate. It shattered, and crockery and bits of vegetables scattered everywhere. The air was thick with blood and snatters and feathers. No quarter was asked for, and none was given. I don't know who screeched the loudest, Russell or me, I do know who retreated first. It was Thelma and Louise. He hawing and braying loudly, these two wise wee donkeys fled the ambush site. Russell retreated also after a few minutes and perched on the roof of our shed. He crowed in triumph. I realised then that's what roosters do. Even when you think they've lost, they think they've won. It's like the struggle for big ideas. When you're up against the system, the system wants you to think you're a loser. But you're a winner just by going up against them with your own ideas. That's when the winning starts. That's why you're never a loser. You're always a winner, like Russell. That's how losers become winners. That's how struggles are won. Winning is never giving in, never giving in to losing, and never giving up. Daddy Dognopper confirmed all of this to me when, alerted by the sounds of combat, he arrived soon after. You're never going to beat the rooster, he said. You're never going to beat Russell. Roosters are famous warriors. Top of the pecking order, symbols of war. 
breeding cocks and all that. In Celtic culture, they were fertility symbols on account of their sexual assertiveness. Russell crowed again. He will never give in. He would rather die, Daddy Dognabber continued. That sounds like a good idea, I said. Well, if we can catch him, I will give him away, Daddy Dognabber offered plaintively. Let's put together a plan. A cunning plan, I retorted. Russell looked down at us scornfully. Cock-a-doodle-doo! He trumpeted defiantly. Daddy Dognopper and I retired to consider our next move. It's big boys' rules now. Pass no boo. Russell is a dead duck walking. <laughs> Oh.